So, we started a political party, but we still have no idea what to put in our manifesto. Welcome back to the pod. It's all about exploring ideas and policies from across the fringes of British politics. Hello, I'm Sam, and I'm joined by my fellow political sleuths, Crinin. Hello. Graham. Hello. And Will. Hello. And coming up in this episode, we're asking the big question about big government. Are we for it? Are we against it? And looking at all these parties we're bringing in with their views and opinions on the subject. So today, we've got the Libertarian Party of the UK with Grinin. Smaller is better. Representing communism is Will Mitchell. Thank you, comrade. And if you didn't think one communist party was enough, we've got a second one with Graham. Hello, uh, yeah, I've got the Revolutionary Communist Party of Britain, brackets Marxist-Leninist. And then finally me, I've got the Breakthrough Party, possibly a little bit more mainstream and electable, I think, than the communists, but who knows? Before we kick off, though, we've done a little research. What do you guys learn? What are your fun facts to kick us off? I've got one here. Did you know, according to some recent polls, that one in four Americans identify as libertarian? Oh, I didn't know that. Well, so there was an election in 2016 where I think Gary Johnson did quite well as the libertarian third candidate. I think he picked up quite a few votes. He got 3% of the votes. Uh, 1.4 million. So yeah, they, they're big on libertarianism. That's not bad, but that's not 25% of the votes. As no. would suggest by your polling. So they've got some way to go. That's true, mate. Well, there's a lot of ground for them to make up. Okay, Graham? Um, all right, this is more of a, more a quiz question here I've got. Can you name a communist party that's achieved the largest share of the popular vote in a democracy in recent years? You said, you said democracy. I thought I knew where you were going with this, and then you said democracy at the mm. end, so I've got yeah. no suggestion. So it was in Nepal. The Communist Party of Nepal, brackets unified Marxist-Leninist, ended up winning the biggest number of votes in their 2020 election and became part of the government. All of these parties seem to have quite catchy names, don't they? There's a lot of brackets. It's the same, like, six words mixed up in different orders. But... <laughs> we don't often hear enough about Nepalese politics. So. Future Maybe. pod. <laughs> yes, you know, we'll do a special on the subject. Uh, Will, anything from you? Well, as you know, I've been looking at communism this week. Uh, and I don't have necessarily a fact about the Communist Party, but I can give you a Karl Marx facts. Yeah. So when Karl Marx, of course, author of the Communist Manifesto, when he died, only 11 people attended his funeral. Really? Yeah. His wife also once pawned his pants so they could buy food. That happened. And a fellow communist once plotted to kill him for being insufficiently radical enough. That doesn't surprise me. That, that doesn't. And we'll come on to a bit more of a radical communism a bit later. So. Uh, and then the Breakthrough Party. I was a bit confused. I looked at their social media and they got about 45,000 followers. Pretty big. Which for, seems for quite a great. party. Yeah, yeah, you'd think that would be a great foundation to build on and, you know, get your messages out there. But they seem to not be doing so well on their, their tweets and getting much engagement. But it was apparently because they went viral for doing COVID videos showing Boris Johnson um, narrated by David Attenborough, which were very well edited and very funny if you have time to... Uh, yes, I think I remember Yeah, that. so we might have recognised those. So, yeah, they certainly did well on their social media messaging during COVID. On the subject of communism as well, I've brought in some communist-themed gifts for us to enjoy today. Oh. oh. So first up, I have an original Comsomol Young Communist League banner of Lenin, which I'll oh, put wow. next to our podcasting studio to look at. Wow. And I have two Communist Party badges. One for me, one for Will. I'm afraid I only have two, and you two aren't communists. Wow. So Not wear, yet. We might be at the end. You might be at the end. Wear it with pride. I will. I will. <laughs> These look like real badges as well. They're, they're the real deal. They're, they're from Moscow. There you go. Well, that's very nice. We haven't started a podcast <laughs> with gift giving. Yeah. <laughs> what, why do you have communist, communist I'm, I'm quite interested in communist things. Graham's a political tourist. <laughs> exactly. It's <laughs> um, a very jazzy logo, though. Okay, so we're looking at big government and small government, but 
before we kick off and do the podcast, what does this mean? What does it boil down to? Well, it's basically just how large a role do people think the government should play in everyday life? And how big that, that government should be as well. Yeah, the size of the state and the burden on the taxpayer are quite a big factors in it. And have you got some uh, examples we could pull of what would be considered a big government initiative? What's something we want to have the government not to be in control of? Any sort of nationalisation projects, so rail nationalisation, energy nationalisation. Any kind of totalitarian state, communist states, they would be big government. The welfare state, providing benefits to people. Nationalised health service. Any sort of large project which I'd say is generally aimed to benefit society and those wanting a big state would think that the private sector wouldn't be able to provide it adequately for the population. People like us, Crennan, me and you, (laughs) big state. And then maybe we can look at the small state. Graham, well, why don't you do your pitch? Or... I, I would disagree with that analysis. <laughs> As I wouldn't say it's always about benefiting people. Um, it's a question of how much the government pokes itself into your life as well. So you know, North Korea is the ultimate big government state. The government is everywhere you look. and controls every aspect of both your uh, physical and your mental life. On the other side, though, you know, the argument for small government is that it allows people to have individual choice. Um, it allows enterprise to prosper. People can make up their own mind about things and start businesses and live their life, follow their own beliefs as much as they want without the state intervening and also wasting their money on things that they don't want to be spent on. And has less success at tackling inequality and poverty, I would argue. Well, unless you believe that enterprise is the greatest driver of equality, but anyway. Well, well, well let's look at the United States, which is the ultimate sort of small government approach, and they have one of the biggest like, inequality gaps in the modern Western world. Okay, so uh, cle- I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm sensing that we've already got a divide on this issue in terms of what we believe. But I think at the end of it, as we've done previously, we'll look at the policies round up and have a bit of a, you know, agree as to what we think the policies for our hypothetical manifesto should be. Um, but I think, you know, let's get into it. Let's, let's start looking at one of the parties. So we've talked about big government. Who's going to go first? Which is a, which a big government party we brought to the table? Well, comrades, let's start with the Communist Party of Britain. And now I have my badge as well. I really am part of it. Yep. So. so I guess the first thing to say to start with, if you walk past a Betfred shop later today and you want to make a lot of money with a small investment, then I would suggest you put a pound down for the Communist Party of Britain winning the next general election. So that's well, yeah. my financial advice to, <laughs> to listeners. What odds are we talking? Yeah. <laughs> the odds... So I was trying to find the odds because I was like, it must be insanely high. But if you put the Lib Dems, it's about 2,000 to 1 or something Mm. at the moment. So the Communist Party of Britain must be way more than that. So (laughs) that's that's why if they win surprisingly, then then you'll you'll, you'll have a lot of money. Uh, The only catch, of course, is that if they do win, they'll take it away from you you very quickly. So... Maybe there's a bit of a hole in that. I really hope the odds are 1,917 to 1. Date of the October Revolution. Oh. That'd be nice. So more, that would be more likely to get in than the, the Lib Dems. Yeah, I mean, it won't be that, but it'd be, it'd be nice <laughs> if it was. Hypothetically, if the Communist Party of Britain did win the next general election against all odds, what do you think would change? How do you think the country would look? What do you think that would actually... I think we'd wear a lot more red. Like, we'd wear a lot, a lot more red, potentially, yeah. Yeah, maybe, maybe just general uniforms, as you Berets say. Berets would come back. <laughs> You've got a very romanticised vision, I think, of communism. But do, 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 there would be berries. And do they have a transition red. plan for if they get into power? 
Oh. So, I mean, they've got their ideas of what would happen. I wouldn't say they've got a plan. I think they have got a plan. It's all written down in the theory. You just have to follow what's written down by Marx and off exactly. you go. Exactly. And that, that's what I'm going off. Mm. Yeah. So I could give you some stuff of what would, what would happen. So all other political parties would be disbanded, of course. So you would only have, because you only need the Communist Party for the Great Transition. Maybe game over for our podcast, by the way. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's one, the only no, reason we should not support. We, we, we would, we'd just be doing the same party every week. Talking about our great glorious leaders. Uh, A lot of communists believe that eventually the state would go all together. So there's a bit of a transition to a communist society and then no need for a state. Although I've not seen any communist government around the world which has yet to, to do that. But that's a belief. All private land would be given to the government and all rents of land given to the public purpose. So as opposed to working for a wage or, or for your own means, it's working for the state. Such land would be used for crops and animal farming, and that ends the need for money. Am I selling this to you guys yet? It all sounds lovely, but I don't think in practice <laughs> it, would, it would work. I mean, you know, you're asking what a communist Britain would like. I, I'd yeah. say bleak, bleak and grey. <clears throat> I want no part of it. Good, well, I couldn't find that on the Communist Party website. <laughs> um, but... So inheritance would be abolished, uh, and those who have more financial resources uh, would be heavily taxed. No surprise there. But of course, money would be abolished altogether in the future stages of the plan. We don't need money anymore because we're growing everything that we possibly need. And we'd also need to analyse which jobs are valuable and the least valuable as well. So some jobs would, would cease to exist. Do you think like podcasters? podcasters. <laughs> yeah, yeah, snap. <laughs> I don't know, because you know, the Soviets had the Union of Writers. Perhaps in this 21st century world, we're going to have the, the Soviet Union of Podcasters. Yep, again, couldn't see that on the website. But, um, <laughs> no, no, your contribution is valuable. Um, <laughs> so what said it, what it, so sarcastic. <laughs> <laughs> what, what is, does that sound, obviously we know to Graham, that sounds like a dystopia to anyone else. Does that sound like a utopia, a great vision? Are you kind of sold on that? It could be nice. You know, yeah. I mean, to be fair, we haven't tried it. I mean, we've not tried it in the UK. People have tried communism. Has it mm. worked? So, this, I mean, that, we could do a whole other podcast on <laughs> on communist governments around the world. Uh, there's a belief, of course, that it hasn't worked, but then some people would say, "Oh, it just hasn't been done properly," and we haven't, you know, we haven't seen that transition. For example, of a government like taking away its state and all the leaders, and you just live in a communist society. So that hasn't. It, it's always yet. quite the easy out with ideologies in general, isn't it? You know, if it doesn't work, you just say, "Oh, it's not been done properly," and yeah. then that's always the, the get out clause, isn't it? Yeah, it hasn't worked purely because of you know inherent human corruption and self which of course they're going to change under a communist good well this is this is a fun podcast not not (laughs) depressing at all (laughs) um well let's talk about the communist party of britain so they currently have 1189 members that's quite an exact number for you there and they're also growing surprisingly so uh, their membership has risen by two-thirds since 2018 and in 2023 they tweeted that they had a membership number not seen since the 1980s and that's that's when they were founded they charge £12 per member, and their turnover, according to Companies House, is about £115,000 a year. So work out whether that Shouldn't be allowed. Take away the money. Just You'd make a great comment. I would. Yeah. <laughs> You're starting to get it. Are you telling me that the Communist Party of Great Britain is a registered company in a capitalist structure? Disgusting. God, I hadn't prepared for this level of attack <laughs> interrogation. <laughs> their predecessors were the Communist Party of Great Britain. So you can see the, the name change for this one. Uh, and at their peak in 1945, they had 60,000 members. So communism as an idea was very popular for a long time. They had over 200 councillors, even had MPs. And for a long time, the Communist Party of Great Britain were one of the biggest opposition to the Labour Party. So the mm. Labour Party were genuinely quite fearful. 
But the Communist Party of Great Britain started to fall apart towards the 90s. They had 4,000 members at the time that they disbanded altogether. And then the Communist Party of Britain, which actually contained a lot of party members from the previous Communist Party, was formed in, in 1988 to really continue the mission of the Communist Party of Great Britain, which they felt had gone to another side and gone more towards socialism and weren't radical enough. So how have they been doing recently? So they, they compete in a lot of elections. The only elections they haven't competed in recent times was when Jeremy Corbyn was the leader of the Labour Party. They decided not to field any candidates because they really supported Jeremy Corbyn. Um, but they've not had much electoral success. But they did briefly have a councillor, a man named Ian Mooney, on Barrow Borough Council this year. He defected from the Labour Party in February. And then that actual council was disbanded in April. I don't know if that was his work, I should say, whether he came in and... No, it's, uh, it's coincidental. Coincidental, but uh, a bit of a conspiracy there. So they had their first councillor for two months, but that is their only electoral success to date. This is completely unrelated, but you know how historically, whenever we've been recording this podcast, I've always got an email from the Liberal Democrats at any one point. It's just dropped into my email. <laughs> they, they've just messaged me with the title, What's new with the Lib Dems? Your latest briefing from the Liberal Democrats. They're listening in. They're Six great. days to go until polling day in Mid-Bedfordshire. Obviously, yeah. when we record this, we'll know the results of Mid-Bedfordshire, whatever's going on there. But anyway, sorry, I, that's... a. Uh, just to interrupt. No, no, and no, thanks for checking your emails during the podcast. That's um, <laughs> very diligent. Yeah. yeah, I don't feel ignored at all. I was wondering why you weren't giving me any eye contact for, for the whole time there. It's clearly because you're just doing your emails. Sorry. Um, just in terms of their, their party membership, I'd imagine that their member numbers increase in times of economic downturn. You'd think there'd be a correlation between them. So it's, it's, it's surprising they have a, a spike in 2023, as they put it, and not necessarily in sort of 2008, 2012. Well, since 2018, they mm. would say. But yeah, you're right. Their leader is Robert Griffiths. He's the second leader of the party after he was elected by the party's executive committee in 1998 to replace Mike Hicks, who was the, who was the founder of the party. Oh yeah, and I should say about Mike Hicks, so he died at the age of 80 on the evening of 7th of September 2017 after collapsing while accepting the position of Honorary President of Bournemouth Labour Party at its annual general meeting. They were big on youthful leaders at that point in the Labour Party, weren't they? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he was initially a member of the Welsh Socialist Republican Movement, which you might not have heard of, but they were investigated by the police over allegations they were making bombs. They were found not guilty uh, of all the charges, um, but that party was very quickly dissolved. And then Robert found the Communist Party. And they were also one of the signatories of the Pyongyang Declaration. So we were talking about North Korea earlier. The Communist Party of Britain is a big supporter of the yeah Communist Party of, of North Korea, which oh. is really interesting <laughs> because uh, it's sometimes hard to find support for uh, Kim Jong-un. He's getting a lot in Russia at the moment. He's getting a lot in Russia. And yeah, so, and I think that, that was part of the research when I was reading all of this. That was a bit that really stuck out to me. If you see North Korea as a success story, maybe you're not the right party for me. That was the only thing that lost me. I was, I was totally sold on communism. You can take off your point. communist badge now then if you've decided it's not. I, I already have. It's, it's on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> so hopefully that gives you a bit of a flavour for what a communist party of Britain, who they are and, and what would happen if, if they did come into power. Although, yes, it would be massive state intervention and state control. There would be a time where they would want the state and the government to go all together. So maybe that comes well, comes a little bit into the shared aim with the libertarian movement, which, of course, is very different politically. 
Thanks, Will. So that's big government you just covered, but you mentioned libertarianism. So let's go there. Crinin, over to you. Yeah. So going from, I guess, very anti-capitalist to full-on capitalism, we have libertarianism. Can any of you give me your definition of libertarianism? So it comes from the word liberty, yeah. which at its heart is a state of being free within society from oppressive restrictions imposed by authority on one's way of life, behaviour or political views, which I may have taken directly from a Wikipedia page. Yeah, that sounds very well done off the top of the head. If that I was agree. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. I would say a, a succinct definition of it is the night watchman state. So the minimum thing you should have, well, the only thing you should have in government is just basically law and order. The rest takes care of itself. Yeah, all good examples there. Libertarianism is a political philosophy that advocates only minimal state intervention in the free market and the private lives of citizens. Now, I've been looking at the UK Libertarian Party. They were founded as a minicus party with classical liberal beliefs in 2007. Minicism, or minimal statism, maintains that the state is necessary and its only legitimate function is the protection of individuals from aggression, theft, breach of contract and fraud, and the only legitimate governmental institutions are the military, police and courts. Minicus argue that the state has no authority to interfere with free transactions between people and see the state's sole responsibility as ensuring that contracts between private individuals and property are protected through a system of law, courts and enforcement. So to wrap up non-interventionalism, laissez-faire capitalism, limiting the size and scope of government, minimal taxation, and they also want the UK to turn into a federalised government based on the Swiss model, which we'll go into in a bit. Yeah, it's, it's mad, isn't it? You know, mm. uh, If some of this sounds familiar, perhaps not the Swiss model, but the rest of it, that's because a lot of this is also large parts of the Tory party believe in mm. it. You know, small taxation, a small state, reducing the civil service, all these things are core tenets of the, the right, more right-wing end of the Conservative Party. Like David Davis, huge libertarian. You raise an interesting point, Graham, because there is a lot of debate around how required a specific party for libertarianism is when it's already represented, for example, in the UK by certain strands of the Conservative Party and the Lib Dems as well. I have a fun little anecdote about libertarians. So uh, I was during one election, I was out door knocking and I came across the Scottish Libertarian Party candidate and he was just sitting at home. I thought this was very apt because he was doing the minimal possible intervention in the election by knocking out campaigning. <laughs> Bang on message. I thought, I thought that was great. How many votes did he get in that election? Oh, it was like 30 or something. He okay. didn't do very well. <laughs> so the UK Libertarian Party, they want a written constitution which holds the individual of the state. They think that that needs to be codified. And it's obviously something we don't have in British politics at the moment is a written constitution. What does that mean? The individual above the state. What does that mean in practice? I mean, it sounds good. Is this like a Peter Thiel-style sovereign individual thing that's going on here, where you know, each person is an inalienable country almost in their own right, and their rights can't be infringed upon by any government? Is that what we're getting at? I think it's about how you promote liberty of the people best. Because, for example, they believe that the liberty of the people is best preserved via a limited government. So I guess it's by ensuring that the state is as small as possible, you're helping to ensure people are as free as possible. Sounds very reasonable. <laughs> you would say that. <laughs> Views differ. <laughs> and yeah, just delving into this written constitution specifically, because I said this is the biggest part of what they think. The constitution is a legal document with fixed meaning, not a living or flexible document open to interpretation. It's very much set. And all public servants should swear allegiance to upholding this constitution as well and be liable in law for misconduct and fraud. Essentially, 
they want the UK to be a federalised confederation of states based on how Switzerland currently is set up. And Switzerland also has lovely walks, mountains, <laughs> cheese and wine, and we would 100% recommend all our listeners pay a visit. <laughs> Should we say, though, that Switzerland doesn't have a libertarian government, though? No, they just want to set it up as, as in the same model that Switzerland has. But you're right, it's not a libertarian it's government. It's not a libertarian country. No. Yeah. yeah it, it's, it's interesting that they're so obsessed with the Swiss. Would we say any country is a libertarian country? I mean, I would say the US is not, but has some tendencies and very big on the freedom of speech and the American dream that everyone can achieve something. It's quite a libertarian mindset, I guess. I think it goes back to the UK or the US. Like, because the sex of, of the parties that are in governance of the two do have such libertarian elements to them, that's the closest I can think of. I think it'd be fair to say that in the, maybe the 18th to 19th centuries, Britain was probably the only time you maybe had a proper libertarian state because both the Tories... And the Whigs, your classic liberals, basically had that night watchman approach and the government just did defence and a bit of taxing and that was it really. So one of my big challenges to libertarianism, can we come on to some challenges and just talk about the idea? Uh, and that's that there's been a lot of invisible economic interventions, right, that have happened over the years that I think a lot of libertarians would not fight against. I think a lot of libertarians would be for some of these government interventions, okay? So they say we're... Not for any interventions, so I would challenge that. Uh, so the most obvious example would be the Factory Act of 1833. I'm not familiar with it. If you're not familiar <laughs> with it, uh, introduced some of the first restrictions to child labour laws. And, and they weren't even that extreme, so they basically, uh, it was to improve the working conditions for children. So it wasn't ending child labour, it was just improving the conditions. So for example, that children between 9 to 13 years old shouldn't work more than 9 hours a day. Factories should have safety inspections. We should introduce two hours of schooling for children. So the point is, that did come in, and that was met with a lot of opposition from parliamentarians. There was a lot of business owners, and they were saying, this is awful state intervention. The state should not be intervening. You know, we're get, factories are going to go bust. But obviously, now we would go with that. That's a good intervention. It's good that children are not working in factories. But that was a state intervention. So I would say there's some of these invisible. And, and other ones, more obvious, would be slavery, drink driving, seatbelts. There's lots of examples. And I, I would... It's interesting you use the term invisible here. Yeah. Um, as I know you're Adam Smith, uh, writer of the Wealth of Nations and so on, one of the great libertarian thinkers, has this theory of the invisible hand mm. from the markets. You know, the market will write itself kind of thing. And although what you're talking about is state intervention, I suppose you could argue that as people, as time goes on, are less willing to buy goods made by children who are 12 in factories, they would stop buying them. And then the invisible hand of the market would then write itself. So if you let things run, perhaps that, that would have happened without state intervention. It's quite an idealistic approach, isn't it? Because you could also say that with slavery, for example, people genuinely just believed that that was, that was fine, right? Mm. So in your idealist view is that, well, we would just have a moral conscience at some point down the line. I guess the argument is that maybe we wouldn't, and actually you need the state to, to almost guide and, and tell us what, you know, if something is wrong, you need the state to, to stop it. But of course, yeah, libertarians believe that things would just be fine. I mean, yeah. to that point, you know, you've got things, if you have a purely libertarian society, who builds the roads, who pays for all the infrastructure projects, you know, who supplies healthcare, without that state intervention there's a lot of people that would fall through the cracks and there'd be problems i found actually a quite interesting quote from um 
from Chomsky on this, which was American libertarians favour tyranny, but is the tyranny of private power. They don't want the states to be in a position to restrict and limit the power of private capital concentration. So you say they don't want the state to do it, but they're happy for the market to control that power of wealth and accumulate capital. So it's an interesting way. And then if the the private markets and individuals hold all the money and the power and the capital, then they are not going to invest in stuff for the people and focus on the people. But on that, though, you know, the, the market would take care of itself, theoretically. So, you know, you'd have, rather than having the state doing it, you'd have multiple private people all building their own roads. They could tax them. If their road wasn't very good, somebody else would build a new one. And then consumer choice would come in and the market would write itself. On the subject of the market writing itself, do you remember that, what was her name? Oh. Liz Truss, remember her? Oh, yeah. That didn't go very well, did it, when they let the markets, you know, work out. They said pro-growth, let the markets work it out. Well, they would have said there'd been too much intervention from the Bank of England. Uh, (laughs) That would be their argument. What about competition law? I think instead of having, you know, which prevents us from having giant monopolies, surely in this libertarian system, you're just going to have giant monopolies. Is that a good thing? Is that... But the, 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 the monopolies started providing per service. Like we've seen with energy companies in the UK, you suddenly get this plethora of smaller competitors coming in, offering more competitive prices, and therefore the market writes itself. I mean, I, I'm not a diehard libertarian. I'll just put that down for the record. But you know, I, I'm, that, that's how I understand the theory would, mm. would operate. I just think it's very idealistic. But it, it's not all politics. To an extent, but I do find it interesting that I'd say it's more often a criticism of the left that they're very idealistic. And of course, libertarianism isn't necessarily strictly left-wing or right-wing, but it's hearing this ideal that the market will somehow solve everything is very weirdly idealistic. I think it's very simplistic as well. So we've talked about how the UK Libertarian Party would want to have a written constitution and would want to structure the country via federal states. I thought it'd be also interesting just to go over some of their other policies as well, just to say how a libertarian view of the UK would work. From the economy, they would scrap inheritance tax. So I guess the polar opposite of what the Communist Party would do. They would scrap all inheritance tax. They'd scrap corporation tax. And they'd also have government departments be closed as default. There's an interesting quote here, which I thought was worth bringing up. So what they do is they'd ask each government department the question of, is this legislation or regulation best done by government? And following on from that, if it is the case, when said legislation is being created, for every act passed through Parliament or the free state legislature, two previous acts will be scrapped, and for every word of regulation written, two words of former regulation will be deleted. Can I just say, right, as, uh, having, having been a, a public servant and a civil servant, I would say that happens already. I think there's always a question about whether we should put something into legislation. And there's a big resistance to that because that's a huge move. There'll be opposition. Um, it, it, it's challenging. It's a, it's a long process. So you always think, is there ways we can, if we want to achieve this, is there other means to do that? They want to give parents authority over their children's educational choices and break up the state de facto education monopoly. And essentially what this means is allowing people to study what they want outside of a core group of subjects. But I think most interestingly, from an education standpoint, they very much are looking to Finland, who famously have a very good education system. And they'd like to start compulsory education at at seven years old. If we were to play like political party bingo on the amount of political parties and that we'll cover, you know, future podcasts and the amount that reference education in Finland, even including our current political parties, both the Conservative Party and Labour Party, it's quite common. So it's not unique. Finland Finland comes up. Yeah, Finland comes up a lot. Their education system is very good. So it's interesting libertarians, though. Um, Use it as an example. From a health standpoint, they want to remove government control from healthcare. And what they would do to provide universal healthcare is they'd have it funded by compulsory insurance. 
And from a defence standpoint, interesting one here. They want to set up a yeomanry of a million people. Do we know what a yeomanry is? A yeomanry is a kind of militia. And they're usually kind of light tank brigades. So it's kind of like a sort of a cavalry militia that's now morphed into like a light mobile unit in the army. It's interesting you mention that because I, having had a little read through their manifesto, I thought it was quite interesting. There's some archaic language that's consistently referenced. I mean, there's, there's a couple of times it references, you know, the role of people in the mutual defence of the kingdom during the time of Saxon kings. It's very interesting how they've got all these... They're picking old idea- ideologies from different times in history and chucking them together in this manifesto, which I thought it's was funny. quite they've funny. They've got some like, very, almost like, realistic po- modern-day policies, like you mentioned the education system looking at Finland, and then they've gone quite bizarre on, mm. on defence. Well, yeah, I don't think they're planning to get in anytime soon, but yeah, I think, I think it would be, that <laughs> well, would be the proposal. Well, that's the Night Watch thing you said, isn't it? They want defence covered. Just to rattle off a few other ones to paint a picture of their policies... They want to get rid of first-past-the-post in favour of a form of proportional representation. Of course. Mm-hmm. They'd like to relax firearms legislation. They think that the blanket approach to the UK at the moment is a bit too draconian. We need more guns. Yeah. Very good. They want to end the BBC licence fee. Uh, you know what, actually? Fair enough. I'll vote for them. <laughs> <laughs> Remove the VAT on bikes, bicycle repairs and walking boots. I think just to promote some general... <laughs> gen- gen- that's general. just a frustration that they've had to put that just, in the manifesto. I know, that's a great policy. <laughs> yeah. And in terms of foreign policy, they're very much wanting to leave the EU customs union, common market and the political EU. So yes, the Libertarian Party of the UK, an example of a small government and their approach. Okay, so from libertarianism to Leninism, we're going to go over to another communist party. Graham? Okay, I've decided to look at the fringes of the communist fringe. So this is a a Maoist Hoxaist party. I think I've said that right. To give you a bit of background... Can you say it again? uh, Hoxaist. And how are you spelling that? Yeah. H-O-X-H-A-I-S-T. Hoxaist. Hoxaist, I think is how you say it. So it's an Albanian name. To give you a bit of co- uh, context in this, Will's party is a, is a revisionist. For clarification, it's not my party. <laughs> <laughs> the communists he was covering, they're revisionists, whereas the ones I'm covering are anti-revisionists. So in the 50s, Stalin dies, his successor Nikita Khrushchev comes along and denounces Stalin's totalitarian state. However, Chairman Mao and his communists in China thought this was wrong, and they thought Stalin had the, the real Marxist-Leninism. So they ignored the reformed Soviet Union and were carried on their own path. In Albania, Enver Hoxha, the, the communist dictator there, he sided with the Maoists, and then he also split away from them to form Hoxhaism, which is his own brand of North Korean-style self-reliance Juche communism. He's very close to Kim Il-sung and all the rest of it. So this party... The Revolutionary Communist Party of Britain, brackets, Marxist-Leninist, to distinguish them from the, the many other um, Hodgers groups. Uh, they're the only ones still going at the Maoist parties. To give you a brief summary, there's, there was the Working People's Party of England, the Communist Party of Great Britain, brackets, Marxist-Leninist, the Communist Party of Britain, brackets, Marxist-Leninist, the Communist Workers' League of Britain, brackets, Marxist-Leninist, <laughs> and the Revolutionary Communist League of Britain. It's all very people's Judean front and the Judean... Oh, you know what I mean. <laughs> it's, it's very people's front of Judea. Yeah. Uh, the reason they have brackets, Marxist, Leninist after all of them is because of this, this revisionist split. So they think they're the true Marxist, Leninists. And right. that's why they have it in brackets, to distinguish themselves from the other fake communists as they, as they see it. So, the f- quick facts about the Revolutionary Communist Party. Their membership is at 750. 
Oh, that's quite, it's bigger than I would have thought. Well, that's yeah. the 1985 estimate, and they haven't oh. updated it since. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> They have their workers' uh, newspaper. There's the Workers' Daily and the Workers' Weekly. You can find them online. They're still published today. Uh, they were set up in... Well, they, haven't, they haven't competed in an election since 1979. Because they don't believe in elections. Is that because... Uh, and because that's the thing within other communist parties as well, but I guess in the name revolutionary, is that a lot of communist parties believe that the only way to get a truly communist society is through revolution. That's the theory, yes. Um, communists don't, they don't believe in democracy. Socialist revolutionaries do, and they might try and subvert the democratic system to get into power, but then they'd scrap the rest of the parties. Yeah. Proper communists just go straight for the revolution of the proletariat, because, you know, democracy is a bourgeois concept. To be fair to them, maybe that is a point, right? If you genuinely do believe in, in the communist society, that probably isn't going to happen if you've got a democratic system. So you have to get rid of democracy, which is not going to happen by itself, so you probably do need a revolution. Yeah, so, yeah. so the party uh, would form the vanguard of the proletariat and then educate the masses to rise up and then stage revolutionary terror and then the process of achieving true communism begins. They're anti-NATO, they're anti-war, they're anti-the war in Ukraine. I think the UK is escalating that and provoking um, the Russians. Uh, and their slogans, their, some of their catchy slogans, a fight for an anti-war government, no to Britain's escalation of war, no to the US, NATO provoked war in Europe. It's an interesting one, that, because you hear a lot about how it's, it's NATO aggression, let's say, has, has led to the war in Ukraine. And obviously, I'd say very left-leaning parties do tend to, to lean towards that viewpoint. And I've never really understood why it's such like an anti-NATO approach on their side. Well, yeah, as NATO is yeah, an imperialist, colonialist structure, as they would right. term it. It gets very confusing when trying to work out the, the provenance of these parties. Um, so the Revolutionary Communist Party was set up by a Canadian communist slash microbiologist called Hardell Baines, I think his name was. They then fractured into various different factions. One of the factions that split out of them uh, is the quite famous Workers' Institute of Marxism-Leninism Mao Zedong Thought, who were a... a <laughs> Rolls off the tongue. <laughs> they were a... Bri- uh, no brackets after that, just that. They don't have any brackets. Okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> they were a Brixton-based cult um, whose leader who's a fellow called Aravindan Balakrishnan, I think his name is. Basically, he got convicted of running a kind of sexual abuse cult slash modern slavery enterprise, wow. where he's keeping people locked up and forcing them to go and clean people's houses and things. That doesn't sound very communist as an organisation, does it? You know, controlling the means of production and labour. <laughs> well, you could say he's carrying it through to its logical conclusion. Their leader... Well, they don't have a leader. They have a collective leadership, like all good communist groups. But probably their most prominent member is a a chap called Michael Chant. He's both the general secretary of the Revolutionary Communist Party, but he's also in the Communist Party of Britain, Braxist, Marxist-Leninist, which is an offshoot of this party. Are we getting a test on all this at the end? I I wouldn't be able to do it. Try (laughs) saying this after a few points, it'd be impossible. (laughs) Thank God. And this is why I find it interesting that Will talked about the Communist Party of Britain being linked to North Korea, which I find interesting because I didn't think they'd back an anti-revisionist party, whereas these Maoists are very big fans of North Korea. Are they one of the signatories as well uh, of the Pyongyang? I don't know if they're part of that, but they're part of the, the Korean Friendship Association or, or allied to the Korean Friendship Association, who you might have seen their leader, who's a fellow called Alejandro de Cao Benos, who is a, like a minor Spanish nobleman slash IT consultant. 
who's also a colonel in the North Korean army. Oh, yes. No, I think I have seen... Have you guys seen The Mole, the documentary? Yeah, yes, yeah. I think he's oh, on that. This is the same organisation. Yes. When this so yeah. guy manages to infiltrate North Korea and... He infiltrates know. the Communist Party, I think in Denmark, doesn't he? And then yeah. they have close relationships with North Korea and then he starts to go to North Korea. It's and absolutely fascinating and completely mad. What's it on? iPlayer, I believe. Oh. I'm just amazed by the amount of different variants of communism that seem to exist. Oh, it's shades within shades. <laughs> <laughs> Their national leader, Chris Coleman, is also quite an interesting character. I thought um, they didn't have a leader. Well, they seem to, but like, well, the, so there's a collective leadership that run the party... I guess he's maybe the face of it. This is difficult. Yeah. It sounds like they're already not going by their ideology. You know? No, it's yeah. very this complicated. This is what happens. <laughs> I mean, he gave quite a reviewing interview on Radio 4 back in 2004, I think it was, with Matthew Paris, the former Tory MP, who asked him, would you like to see a North Korean-style government in the UK? Chris Corbyn said, we will develop socialism here, but the people will decide what kind of socialism it is. And he thinks it will come in our lifetime. Wow. But he doesn't think it's useful to make predictions on that. Do they have, have any... I mean, if they're, they believe in a revolution, should we be worried about them? Well, didn't Karl Marx initially identify the UK as the most likely place to have a revolution? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So that's why you had Lenin living in London for quite a bit. Some of the first communist congresses happened in the East End because we had such an advanced working class, advanced industrialization. They were closest to achieving the material conditions for communism. And that's still the theory from the Revolutionary Communist Party of Britain today. And interestingly, one of their members recently had a great deal of prominence in the Daily Mail. There's a lady called Leslie Larkham, who is a teacher at Dulwich College, where P.G. Woodhouse... Shackleton and Nigel Farage all attended. But she got on hot water recently for visiting North Korea and she was a music teacher there and she was encouraging pupils at Dulwich to sing North Korean songs in praise of the leader. She's still teaching? As far as I understand, yes. At least she's not teaching economics, though, I suppose, comparatively. She's, if it's music, communist music is less effective as a tool for... Are you changing opinions there? (laughs) Economic theories of communism. Every good revolution has to have a good soundtrack. Maybe we should get her on the podcast. Have you seen Les Mis? (laughs) (laughs) Well, she she used to lead a women's socialist choir called Velvet Fist, who'd go around performing the North Korean national anthem at events. So that's the the revolutionary communist party of Britain, brackets, Marxist-Leninist. As you can probably tell, because they don't compete in elections, they've never broken through. Have one party who have, who Sam's going to cover, is I believe the... Breakthrough party. Good segue, Graham. Very, very good. Although I would caution you on saying they have broken through. They've had some successes. They are limited. But yes, the Breakthrough Party. So these are a new social democratic party formed really from the ashes of the Corbyn movement, Momentum, and the left of the Labour Party, who now feel politically homeless with Keir Starmer's changes in policy and to the centre. So as I said, these guys are registered in 2021. They've got a thousand members, actually. So we've, they're, I mean, not as big as the not as big Communist as the Party. Communist Party of Britain. What does that tell you? <laughs> well, well, they may have a thousand members, but they have allegedly two and a half thousand supporters. I don't know how they categorize that, but that's people who are on their mailing lists and uh, support them from that front. And they have nearly forty-five thousand followers on Twitter. That was the thing about momentum and people supporting Corbyn. It was those grassroots activists, you know, social media presence, getting the message out there effectively and and cost-effectively. And their plan is they're hoping to capitalise on that grassroots support on the left and and get their message out there. And they also have quite a big following on TikTok. And some of their videos get over 100,000 views. Really? I didn't know that, but I'm not on TikTok. TikTok said like a man that goes on it very regularly. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, TikTok. I do know, no, I do do know. 
I do know what TikTok is. So, yeah, they've, they've got a following and they certainly know how to get their message out there on social media. They say they are a new home for those who've been abandoned by the political establishment. Their policies are made by those who live them and they are truly democratic and member-led. So these policies they I'm going to go through aren't dreamt up by, you know, a couple of people in the room thinking of policy. This is purely democratic. Members have suggested these and they've come to these conclusions. Their leader is Alex Mays, is a chap in his early 30s, former activist and organiser for the Labour Party. As I said, with the Corbyn project, you know, not fulfilling its objectives and becoming ousted from the party, uh, a lot of these activists, they decided they would form the Breakthrough Party. So he's one of those. Now, I'll go into their policies at a high level. They've actually got 150 on their website, and I will give it to them. It's quite a slick and well-developed website compared to some of these other fringe parties they have. So they are certainly pretty good on that front. Would you actually go through all 150? I think it'd be. I think our listeners would find that very useful. We might go over our running order at that point. We might. <laughs> okay, so they want to implement a £16 minimum wage and promote a transition to a four-day work week without loss of pay. They want to take energy, water, broadband, and mail into public ownership. They want to work towards introduction of universal basic income. They want to invest in construction of at least 150,000 new council hams per, per year and introduce rent controls in the private rented sector. They want to renationalise the NHS and create a national independent living service. They want to reinstate free university education, including for more mature students and cancel existing student debt. They want to nationalise public transport. So that's their big ticket items. Just one point there, re-nationalise the NHS. They missed the last 70 years. That is their wording. I, they are, they, that's their wording on the website, but I, having listened to interviews, it's like remove all privatisation. That's it, that's it, yeah. They're just saying there'll be no more private partnerships, it'll be 100% publicly funded. Exactly. Um, so they see it as a re Yeah, because different trusts in the NHS do have different elements of privatisation existing already. It's not a public service by any means, as it's not completely public. So mm. the reason I brought these guys into the big government piece, obviously they are quite focused on that level of government, but I was, my immediate thought, and this is one of the things that, one of the reasons the Labour Party in 2019 didn't do so well, is because people were chucking out lots of numbers and figures as to quite how expensive some of these pledges would be. So I've just looked at a few of these of that high level view and kind of got some stats on quite how expensive these would be, and maybe you guys can have a guess. So if you're looking at reinstating free university education and writing off student debt, how much do you think that would cost? 15 million between a million to 5 billion <laughs> somewhere somewhere in there 20 billion 20 billion okay so this is stuff from 2017 this is from the institute of fiscal studies they said if a government would come in an office in 2022 set on writing off all outstanding debts from the post 2012 cohort so when it went up to nine grand a term or nine grand a year sorry removing all the outstanding debt it would be in the region of 100 billion pounds wow. wow i'll give you another one taking energy, water, broadband and mail into public ownership. So sorry, this one, this that I have does not include that mail element. Mm -hmm. But yeah, taking energy, water and broadband into public ownership. How much do you think that would cost? 10 million. Another 100 billion. Oh, I think it's got to be 200, 300 billion to buy every water company, utility company. Yeah, I mean, yeah, huge yeah. amounts. Yeah, CBI analysis puts the cost of bringing Royal Mail, water and energy and rail industries back into government ownership at almost 200 billion pounds. So we're up to 300 billion already and we've only done two policies. So Good. it's potentially quite expensive. Get the checkbook out. And yep. They said how they would plan to pay for it. I guess, I could take a guess, that they'll put tax rates up. Yeah, they've got suggestions on wealth taxes and raising taxes, so yes. Would they take the communist route though of just seizing the means of production? Because you could just cut this cost by just taking it. 
Well, that's true. They haven't mentioned that, so they are not that far. They should speak to my friends in the Revolutionary Communist Party. They can teach them a thing or two about this. It's a collaboration. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. The Breakthrough Party of the UK brackets Lenin Marxist or Marxist Lenin. <laughs> so then they have a point on renationalizing the NHS. We covered that. So ensuring that all services are uh, removal, privatization. Labour's plan to nationalize GPs would have increased the cost of 15 billion up front and add 1.7 billion a year to the NHS wage bill, according to research by The Times. So that's another big cost. And the final one is the introduction of a universal basic income. They haven't said specifically how much it would cost. And there's certain studies and experiments going on. There's actually one in the UK right now. But yes, so it's worth bearing in mind on universal basic income on UBI. Finland did a trial a couple of years ago. Two-year trial. I don't think they did pick it up afterwards. It was mixed results. It was with a fair sizable population, hmm. maybe a couple of hundred people, um, and it was it was mixed. But for a lot of people, it did change their lives, and yeah, and for others, it didn't make. It but it's interesting because the Finnish one, I think, is working on the basis of five hundred and eighty dollars worth per month. I think it was something like that. Yeah, but yeah. this one, the one that's in the UK, it's only about 30 people or something. It's a very, very small random sample. They're working on the basis of £1,600 a month. And you can keep working whilst you're receiving exactly. it as well. So, I mean, if you told me tomorrow you're going to get 19 grand extra for the year tax-free, I'd probably say that would make my life better. So, Open Democracy, sort of a, a think tank, um, estimated the cost of a poverty-level universal basic income for the UK would cost £67 billion a year. That's amounting to £7,000 for adults and 3800 for children. So, again, if they're going with that, that's another £67 billion. So there's significant costs associated with this, the Breakthrough Party uh, and their manifesto, which I thought I would cover. One interesting point I thought, though, is you said, was it 150,000 new homes and rent freeze was their proposal for new housing? Yeah. Which is the same as the, the Green Party recently announced during their conference. And I thought it was a bit of a low target. Considering Labour are planning or trying to claim for 300,000 homes in the next five years. Probably on that, I think if you're green, building lots of homes would then destroy the natural built environment. So it doesn't become a tussle between building on greenfield. I suppose the point, though, is that this party here, they're very aware of the need for extra housing and find it unusual that perhaps a smaller party goes for a lower target when they could maybe change the conversation by having a larger target. Maybe they're trying to sound like they're a bit more realistic. So if they were too ambitious, people might go, well, that's not achievable. So then they wouldn't yeah. support the party. So I imagine it comes down to that a bit. Just nationalise all the water companies instead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just give everyone you Well, according to weownit.org, so it's a little non-profit research company that's focused entirely on the subject of nationalisation, if we were to take water into public ownership, it would save us £2 billion a year and reduce leakages by a third. Sorry, save £2.5 billion per year. So we're saving £2.5 billion per year, but that nationalisation of water is wrapped up in that £200 billion potentially. So it's going to take quite a while before that's all paid off. Yeah, and whenever in the future you wanted to improve the water network... We'd have to raise taxes to pay for that, presumably. So exactly, and I think that two hundred billion I've I've referenced in the research that covers future as that doesn't cover future investment needed to modernise and maintain. So there's the maintain significant costs in the future as well. Mind you, Thames Water have said that they're going to be raising the price of bills by sixty percent by twenty thirty. So you know mm. the costs are going to be going up no matter what. Yeah, that's true. So so that's a quick deep dive on their, their manifesto and some ideas and, and looking at the cost pressures because that was the thing that stuck out for me. But they're in a bit of a limbo at the moment because as they've identified on the left, there's a lot of smaller challenger parties for these politically homeless people on the left, but they're looking to now join up and form a bigger group. Maybe, Will, you've got some of the research on this. Yeah, yeah, because I would say that they've had a little bit of success. So at their peak, they had eight councillors. I think even 
the beginning of this year they had seven councillors and then we had the local council elections and I think now they've only got two current councillors. But yeah, so they've partnered up with a few other political parties and movements to create a new political party called Transform. So Transform UK, it's launching on the 21st of November in Nottingham. Uh, so they've partnered with parties like Left Unity, which I'm sure we'll cover in a future episode. That was the left-wing party founded by Ken Loach, uh, the film director who wanted to create a sort of UKIP of the left party in 2014. They've also partnered with People's Alliance of the Left and the Liverpool Community Independence. And yeah, so it's an idea to actually have a larger political party, use almost a combined membership of all these different political mm. parties. Yeah, be, be in opposition to Labour, really. So they... Yeah, we'll contest in the next general yeah, election. Yeah, and we haven't done the um, research on how many members each of those other four of that coalition have, but, you know, there's certainly a larger membership base there. There's a larger reach in terms of their social media. Left Unity have over a 1,000 members. Hmm. So we're looking at perhaps, you know, three to 5,000 members of a new political party that's, that comes in November. So it could be quite a interesting force for change. With a major Hollywood director giving them help with their public output. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think it could actually go somewhere. I mean, I, th- I think there probably is a bit of a gap for new political parties, as we've seen with Reform Party, which we covered in, in previous episodes. So maybe having a party, the argument is like why it's existing when with like a Green Party, because the Green Party would be that that party at the moment of the left. Yeah, and I think, I mean, this podcast is, is almost set up for two aims. One is to explore these ideas that they're coming up with who haven't necessarily been put out there in, in, the, in the frame and the national conversation, but actually in the we learn up. But actually, in the run-up to the next general election, parties like this, perhaps, you know, the unification of those five parties could then start to stand and could then get a bit bigger share of the vote. It'd be interesting to see what Jamie Driscoll does as well. So he was the Labour mayor of um, the north of Tyne Authority, so Newcastle. He's very close with Ken Loach and appeared in an event with him. And he's now got independent. He claims he was deselected by the Labour Party. And he'll be shopping around. Maybe he'll run as an independent, but perhaps, mm. perhaps we could see... Jamie Driscoll mm. getting teamed up with the start seeing some big names and yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, there's there's an interesting question of whether the Breakthrough Party will continue to exist beyond November. That's not been announced, so we don't know. Will all these parties just become Transform, or will they all exist and just work under this umbrella um, of the of the Transform Party? Well, I guess we'll see. We'll see how they launch and, and see where they, where they go. So we've covered big government with the Communist Party, we've covered small government with Libertarianism, and with the Breakthrough Party, something a little bit in the middle. Now, of course, this podcast is about finding policy ideas, agreeing them, and putting them in a manifesto. So let's go around, guys. What have you? What are your thoughts on manifesto pledges and potential policies we could adopt? I can start with the only Communist Party policy that maybe we could adopt, which would be to ban all inheritance. Ooh. And, and the justification that it, you know, prevents people from getting an unfair advantage. An unfair advantage, I guess, financially in life. Are we all supportive of that? Good. So that's going in the manifesto. No, uh, no, <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, Is there objections? Let's not get too, too carried away here. No, no I, I, I would not subscribe to that, I don't think. Oh, it surprised me. I guess the point is it's the, it's a, a big barrier to social mobility, isn't exactly. it? Exactly, that, massive the, barrier to social mobility. The only way to actually have true social mobility, arguably, would be ban inheritance, or at least it'd be a strong move to start with. If hmm. we remove the incentive for people to go out and strive economically, then why should you know, growth ever happen? You know, If you work hard, if you've you know, saved all your life, why shouldn't you be allowed to pass that on to your next kid? 
Well, it's about what you're trying to, to promote as a society, isn't it? You know, yeah. what sign of society are you trying to shape? Because uh, it's about a greater thing than just yourself. Yeah, just yeah. spend it. Go on more holidays. Well, that's true. But I mean, people invest in, in things in this country. They have their assets in this country that are managed by, by people in this country. And there's an economic benefit to having wealth in the country. Mm-hmm. If you cut inheritance tax, then you're going to have less wealthy people, less money, assets on shore, and less of an economic benefit to that capital in the UK. And we are a service economy at the end of the day. So we do need to benefit from large amounts of money in the UK. And cutting inheritance tax, I think, will send some of it offshore. Okay, yeah. or you could have some sort of maximum inheritance tax as a sort of in-between. Yeah. Okay, so no consensus on inheritance then. No <laughs> consensus. Let's, do it. Let's try another one. Let's try another one. The part of the policy I really liked was um, scrapping VAT on walking boots, bikes and bike repairs. I think that's a really good policy. It'll get people out and about, get them active, reduce the NHS bill, mean we all live longer, so on and so forth. Do we like this? I quite, quite like it, actually. As a, yeah. Yeah. I like it. I don't think it goes far enough. I think we should take VAT off, you know, home fitness equipment and other things that ensure we live uh, a healthy lifestyle. Gym memberships. Gym memberships, yeah, exactly. Skateboards, rollerblades. Yeah. Quite right. If, well, if you're into that sort of thing, yeah. Yeah. So motion passed. Motion passed. Motion carries. passed. passed. Well, okay, we have a policy. I think I've got one. Do you think we can get another? I think there's another option here. I did quite like the Libertarian Party's idea about accountability for public servants mm. um, and ensuring that they, you know, they all swear allegiance to upholding the constitution and be liable in law for misconduct and fraud. That seems reasonable. Well, we don't have a constitution, but I, I get the point. Yeah, the, idea, the idea about accountability. Uh, as ministers are members of the Privy Council, they have to swear allegiance to the monarch, who is clearly the embodiment of the constitution. And we have a ministerial code already, which upholds standards in public life. So would we strengthen that? Would that maybe be, it in law. Yeah, that could be uh, strengthen up the, the committee that runs the ministerial code. There's something in that, I think. Yeah. Accountability overall, hmm. yeah, for, for leaders. Yeah. Yeah. Great. So two. And... Uh, Planning inheritance, three. Perfect. <laughs> three policies. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay, thank you so much for listening. That's the end of the podcast. But before we go, guys, we got any uh, you know interesting remarks or, or quotes you want to put to the group? Yes, I've got one, which is often cited by libertarians. We don't actually know who said this, but it's been attributed to have likely been former US President Thomas Jefferson. That government is best which governs least. And I'll leave you with these inspiring words from the Workers' Weekly, the Revolutionary Communist Party of Britain's newspaper. Fight for an anti-war government. Challenge the dictator, the Westminster cartel. Organise for the alternative. Wow, wow. big big (laughs) energy to finish, Graham. I enjoyed that. Thank you so much. Okay, that's all from me. I've been Sam. I've been Crillon. I've been Graham. I've been William. And uh, as is tradition, Graham has been scouring the internet for the best musical uh, interludes or outros for our for our podcast. So, Graham, what have you got this week? This week, I've got for you uh, a little ditty called "Founding of the Party" from the founding of the Revolutionary Communist Party. Here we go. With a class of proletarians, we have unbounded strength and fire. But today we're enslaved, and our very lives are up for hire. To end this degradation, the party to conscious revolutionary action does aspire. Round the teachings of Lenin, we must constantly unite. He taught that the working class needs a party of new type. A party professional and disciplined that can organize the revolution and for this unfailingly we fight. The founding of the party 
the greatest historic landmark. Grasping Marxism, Leninism, the party leads the British working class on the path of the great October Revolution. This path is the 